When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettigan. How's it going? Pretty good. Good. So I'm going to start off the show by thanking our Patreon contributors for this past week. This week we had Liz... Candace, Liddy, and I just want to make a note about Liddy that she left us a really sweet comment on Patreon that she's contributing so that we can have our pasta tour of Italy. Yeah, I'm excited. Which I just realized I feel like a pasta tour of Italy is like a thing at Olive Garden. <laughs> but that's like, I, I think that's Honestly, like a, sometimes I'm like, I will go to Olive Garden. I'll go to Olive Garden. I don't think I've ever been and I know everyone rags it, but Sometimes I'm just like, I need like a lot of food in my belly. <laughs> like I can go to the fancy good pasta, but those right. pasta servings are like They're appetizer tiny. portions. Yeah. It's like, I need more than one big ravioli. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. Lady. That was really sweet. Because that is our dream is to go to Italy and just eat pasta. Right. The or whole time. just to Moza. Right. That's a pasta <laughs> I want, like, tour. like four dishes. <laughs> right. We also had Amy... Megan, Ted, Harper, Daniela, Mateo, Donna, Amy, Joe, Helene, and our boy Tristan. Tristan. What up, Tristan? <laughs> I said I'd give you a very special shout out this episode. Tristan is a lively uh, person on our Facebook group. He In makes our me laugh. Group. Yeah, he's hilarious. A lot. We love we him. We love him. He's, he's, where is he? In, he's somewhere in Europe, right? Is he in Berlin? No. I he's, can't remember. He were, said a few places. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys so much. If you want to be a Patreon contributor, you can go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. There you'll get access to our bonus content that we have available. Okay. So should so, we, do we have anything else up top we need to get no. out of the way? We're going to get right into it, bitches. <laughs> All right. I'm excited about this week. Okay. On October 4th, 2015, a woman named Kirsten Rickenbach Cervani, a 38-year-old mother of three, was found dead in a New York building foyer. This story kind of instantly became a sensation since people initially assumed it was some kind of rape or murder. Right. Like, why is this mom in New York City dead <clears throat> in this hallway or whatever? But details quickly emerged that made the story even stranger than what it initially had seemed. And yes, you scolds, there is a Hollywood connection, so calm the fuck down. <laughs> Not that you were scolding me, because you did know you write that, that doesn't in work. Your notes? I did write that in my fucking notes, Rachel. <laughs> just in case someone was like, I'm going to turn um, this. Excuse me, is this just a random murder? That I'm going to turn Hollywood? this whole yeah. podcast off. Because yeah, we're very strict about that rule. This was actually a recommendation from our Facebook group page by uh, Missy. Hey, Missy. Hey. I actually um, made sure to write down her name because in the past I have forgotten when I wanted to credit someone. Right. I was like, someone, you know who you are. <laughs> so this time I made sure to find Missy and give her creds. It was a story I actually knew about, but completely had forgotten about. Yeah. Um, so it was a good, it was a hot tip, Missy. Thank you. Uh, and 
you should go to our Facebook fan page or friend page, whatever it's called, because we do take suggestions there sometimes. I mean, we're always writing them down. Whether or not we do them right away is, is another thing. Another incentive for you to check it out is our year anniversary is actually coming up. And right now we're running, well, we have a thread where people can suggest shows for our anniversary show. And eventually in the next week, we're going to have a poll up so you can uh, vote on what you want our anniversary uh, show to be. And we will pick that episode. Right. Right, Rachel? Rachel agrees. But back to the mysterious dead mom. Okay. Uh huh. A little background on Kirsten Rickenbach, Cervani, when she... When she was born, her name was just Rickenbach. <laughs> I do not have that in my notes. I got lost. Uh, she grew up in Washington Township, New Jersey, and graduated valedictorian from her high school. She was also voted most studious and most likely to succeed, and friends and family basically called her the perfect child. Dun, dun, dun. No. Uh, <laughs> she was a bit of a John Bonet also. She was like a pageant queen and involved in pageants basically her whole life. I kind of love New Jersey pageant girls. Love it. I feel like that's kind of better than the Southern ones for some reason. I don't know why. They're more likely to throw a bottle of hairspray at someone. Right. They, like, yeah, I don't know. They just don't, They just seem a little bit more like tough underneath, but maybe not. Um, that same year she graduated high school, she actually was named America's Junior Miss, which I think is a pretty big title. Uh, one interesting... Uh, tidbit from that was her talent portion was performing a step aerobics fitness routine oh that is so dated <laughs> this is only like 1995 i think though oh my really yeah i feel like by that, the early 90s aerobics well, you're was still over. doing that like i mean that's insane to me unless it was like a retro performance no but it there were actually pageant clips of her that some i saw on one of the articles i read but maybe we can post one of those Anyway, she ended up winning a $30,000 scholarship from that America Junior Miss Pageant. And that, so that step aerobics routine really paid off. So she did her workout <clears throat> routine. I guess. I need to see this. Like, I could never do step aerobics. It's a little too complicated for me. I don't know. Uh, I'm not that coordinated. My mom actually. used to do it. And I would go to the I feel like class when I would her. finally get the move, they move to the next move. And I'm like, no, bitch, I just got it. Uh, so that's my step aerobics. Personally, I think they should bring it back. As I like can a never do anything that has choreography as far as exercise. Like I, I can only focus on one thing at a time. Do you want me to do cool choreography or do you want me to do fitness? Come on. <laughs> um, so she went on to graduate from uh, Duke University, magna cum laude, which I was, <laughs> I was thinking like, I, even though I'm a high school dropout, I did graduate magnum cum laude. Wait, you did? <laughs> no. Come. Oh, you did. Oh, well, it's oh. a joke, Rachel. Jesus. Well, then I graduated. So you did too. Magna cum laude too in high school. <laughs> so after Duke University, she went to Tulane where she got her medical degree in Louisiana or, she, or New Orleans. She worked at the Medical Center of Louisiana at New Orleans. And that is where she met her would-be husband and fellow dermatologist, Andrew Cervani. Uh, they actually had their wedding featured in, in like the New York Times announcement. Like that's what level they're at. They right. had their wedding in the New York Times. I don't even know if that's a good level, but it's something. That's like rich people. Yeah. It's like, I wouldn't even think of doing that if I got married, which I won't, will not. But uh, Cervani... Uh, her husband was chief of dermatology at Brooklyn Hospital Center, and she acted as an assistant professor of clinical dermatology at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. They lived in Manhasset, Long Island, which is a pretty nice area, in a $1.2 million home. Wow. So these people had money, 
and they were pretty successful. So like Kirsten was the person who had the typical perfect life on Facebook. She, you know, posted pictures of her vacations and all of her great things that they were doing in their rich life with their three perfect children and all of that. But like most people who present their perfect life on social media, she did have a bit of a darker side that she did not share, not even on Twitter, (laughs) which is usually where people go to share the dark side. Right. Interestingly enough, it was after a night with one of her Facebook friends, an HBO producer named Mark Johnson, who she had known for years, even before she was married and had kids, that that perfect life would unravel in like a major fucking way. So Mark Johnson, he got his start in like entertainment industry while he was studying at Cornell University. He pursued theater and film there, and he also took part in the Cornell theater productions there. According to college friends, he was part of a close new close group of friends, like a close-knit group, and he was often described as kind and sensitive, a good friend, all that kind of stuff. A well-known professor at Cornell, Henry Louis Gates, actually knew him as a student there. He said that he was a recognizable voice on campus, and he described Mark's character as being very creative. He was generous, open, and an ever-seeking soul. He won a Peabody Award for his work producing a Huey P. Newton story, which was a Spike Lee dramatization. And he also worked on Lee's iconic 1989 film, uh, Do the Right Thing. 1989. I said 89. Oh, I thought you said 99. Well, I stumbled over it, but I said 1989. God, Rachel. Rachel and her date. She's such a little cunt. I'm sorry. <laughs> God forbid I make a mistake in my speech pattern. Um, he also worked on the Michael Moore documentary series, The Awful Truth which ran from like 1999 to 2000. And he had done a documentary about the man behind the Black Panthers. Wait, is that the Huey P? That's the Huey P. Newton story. I'm sorry. I screwed up again. Rachel is right to correct me because I'm a dipshit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Johnson took a break from working on a PBS documentary to focus working on a show called The Deuce, which chronicles the sex industry in the 1970s and it was set in New York City. Well, it's on now. And was made with The Wire creator, David Simon. Is it still on? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure if it got picked up, but yeah. I mean, that was just like last year that it it ran. Um, Now, it was while he was working on the first season of The Deuce that he had this fateful night with Kirsten, something that he describes, no doy, I did put that in my notes, as the most horrendous night of his life. (laughs) You put no doy in your notes? Yeah, I did. No doy. Because he described, it's like, obviously. Yeah. I mean, come on. So on October 3rd, Kirsten told her husband she was going to spend the night in New York City with a friend. uh, And they were basically going to go bar hopping in the Lower East Side. So it's pretty uh, responsible, I think, to get a hotel room. You go in New York City, you're not whatever. Johnson was also out that night carousing separately from her at this point early in the evening. According to a witness he was with, at some point he texted someone at the bar they were at and referred to a man named Pepsi. The text, according to her, said something like, I'm a little too tipsy to leave right now. I'm, or he said to her, I'm a little too tipsy to leave right now. I may go to Pepsi for a pickup. The friend texted back, where? Me, my friend Pepsi, Pepsi is in Chelsea. A half hour after that, he added, if you're still there, I'm ready to roll. At some point, Johnson hooked up with Kirsten at a bar where her and her friends were at. She had been apparently using cocaine before Johnson arrived. 
That's according to him, and I don't know that anyone contradicts that. Johnson said he had also had already had a significant amount of uh, cocaine, and he said to her at some point, uh, I know where I can get more. Like From got, Pepsi. From Pepsi. Pepsi. Reports at that time said that a cab took the pair to a building on West 16th Street in Chelsea where Johnson's friend and drug dealer James Pepsi Holder lived. Can we just talk about a Coke dealer nicknamed Pepsi? Is that like irony? I or? think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is Pepsi okay? <laughs> yeah. Pepsi. And they arrive at Pepsi's house our apartment around 4.30 a.m. And this is according... They have all of this, by the way, on surveillance video, and I'll get well, to Desi, that Well, Desi, that's when you go to get more Coke, is it 4.30? <laughs> well, and that's also when the bars kind of close in New York at 4. Yeah. So everyone's kind of like, what do we do now? I'm just the speaking from young. experience. Right. <laughs> that's when you That's when you need the up, the pick-me-up, right? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, see, I need... Rachel's going to be my expert advisor on this episode, because <laughs> I do have some cocaine questions. <laughs> Ask away, baby. Ask away. <laughs> um, okay. So after several hours at Pepsi's apartment, during this period, they're obviously doing cocaine, etc. Johnson falls asleep at some point. Okay. How does he fall asleep? <laughs> See, Rachel, you have to interject here because I wouldn't even think that's odd. That is so... You can't fall asleep on cocaine? No. Okay. Oh, well, unless you're one of those... Here. Maybe the, he dozed off for one second. No, no, you can't doze off. You're not hungry. You can't doze off. You don't want to fuck. I, I feel like it's the people who aren't drug addicts, though. I only have the drug addict perspective of it. People who aren't addicts can do all sorts of weird shit that non-addicts right. can do. But I feel like that is still very odd. Right. Well, we don't know... Is it possible they stopped and then a half hour later he dozed off? No. Okay. See, I don't know how it works. That seemed perfectly <laughs> uh, logical to me. I'm like, yeah, it just I'm tired. It just, it seems weird to me. Okay. Well, listen. He said he dozed off. According to him. Uh, and that when he woke up, he found Kirsten in distress. At that point, he got Holder, the dealer, obviously, and he Holder basically ordered those two out of the apartment. It was like, get the fuck out of here. Don't OD in my apartment kind right. of deal. But she couldn't leave. She was literally unconscious. Johnson and Holder at that point grabbed the unconscious doctor by the arms and legs and carry her downstairs to the lobby of the building. According to like the video, this took about a minute for the two to um, kind of do this from the apartment to get her into the lobby. Once they were there, the dealer basically left the scene. He fucking hightailed it out of there. Out of his own place? Right, yeah. And Johnson kind of did some attempts at resuscitating her and actually called one of her friends before calling 911. Uh, he called the nine, he called 911. He said a woman's passed out. He was like, according to the dispatcher, he was breathing very heavily and like seemed very panicked. Yeah. Obviously I can't imagine that's probably really scary when you're high on drugs and you're, <laughs> it seems like really stressed. Like it's it, the worst case I mean, scenario. I feel like even when I'm stoned and something like I remember one time I got really stoned and I lit a fire in my fireplace and it just seemed a little excessive. And all <laughs> my friends and I were sitting there like, we're going to burn this house down. And like we were like literally panicking for 15 <laughs> minutes. I'm sure it was fine, but we were like freaking out. That's my big drug story. Rachel's like, damn, you're such an amateur. <laughs> um the emergency uh, personnel finally arrive and Johnson like basically were like, there she is. Um, her feet were actually in, 
there you can see pictures of this her feet were holding the door open yeah to the foyer of this apartment building and her head was kind of out the corner of the door frame and that's according to a, an emt according to a witness so she saw, was like a doorstep by the way this is all like about 8 30 a.m so people are walking around on the street neighbors are like whatever yeah like things are happening like the city it's not in the middle of the night anymore According to a resident in the building, he described her as coming out topless, but that might have been because he tried to resuscitate her and pulled her shirt up or something. He described her face as white and her lips were blue. He also said that he saw a man who looked like Johnson pacing indecisively nearby before the EMT, uh, before the cops came, or he actually walked away before the cops came. So he waited for the EMT to come and then kind of hightailed out, like tag team, like, okay, like I've done my duty. Police and paramedics attempted to revive Kirsten on the scene there, but soon brought her to Lenox Hill Hospital, where she was pronounced dead. Now, during all of this, like, initial, like, investigation or, like, assessment of what had happened, uh, there were marks around her neck that they kind of noticed. And the other sort of suspicious detail that made them think that this might be a rape or murder situation was that she was not wearing underwear and her underwear were in her um, purse. Now, the the neck bruises and marks ended up being related to a medical procedure she had had pre, like in the previous week or something like that. Of course, I'm like, what medical procedure? Right. What is <laughs> like, that? Like, what did you do? Because she does have really good skin. I mean, she's a dermatologist. So I'm like, oh, she must have had some kind of good treatment. Um <laughs> And then I also do, I have had panties in my purse before. Yeah. I don't find that very suspicious. That's not. And not even for like, um, sorted reasons. <laughs> like a few times I've brought a spare pair. Is right. that sorted? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I have like paid for coffee and pulled panties out of my purse. It's like, not outside the realm of possibilities. I don't think so. But I, I mean, I could see why like, Oh, what's, she's not wearing panties. That's kind of suspicious. And she's lying in a doorway. Like what's happened to this woman? But there were, like I said, there were witnesses at this point and they were all telling the police that there were these two men, that they saw these two men carrying this woman into the doorway. So the police are like, who are these two fucking men? Cause at this point they knew the guy had called 911, but they had no idea who these men were. Eventually, they do find out who the men are, and obviously, it's Johnson, who was 51 at the time. At some point, he did call 911 another time and ask if she was okay. I don't think that's why he was discovered, but it did show, like, a little bit of, like, he wasn't over this. Like, he wasn't, like, the drug dealer who was just, like, (laughs) I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And then they also knew that the drug dealer at this time, uh, as I said, his name is... um, Holder, and he was about 60 years old at the time of the incident. He completely just disappeared. In the apartment, they eventually do realize it's his apartment. They go up to the apartment and they find numerous plastic zipper bags packed with narcotics. Um, and state prison records show he had served three separate stints in prison on dr- drug and weapons charges between the years of 1978 and 1996. Now, there was another person in the apartment that night. Uh, she shares the apartment with uh, Holder, and her name is Jerry DeChico. She's 69 years old, and she is described as someone who did introduce him as her husband, even though they weren't married. She denies ever having met or seen Kirsten that night, and she said she didn't know where Holder was, so she wasn't like a really great witness. A neighbor actually at some point said uh, he 
talked to her about what happened and she said she's he said Jerry is pissed off she said she was sleeping when this was going on and she told me she couldn't believe he was doing this while he while she was sleeping so she's like the aggrieved girlfriend who's like what were you partying in the next room like that's her sort of opinion of what happened well she has to know that he deals drugs right I mean she seems a little crazy to me and I honestly kind of love her she also told this guy that she doesn't believe he was selling drugs what yeah she said, if he's a drug dealer, why don't I have better shoes? <laughs> Listen, this is where Rachel's going to interject. Okay, Rachel, interject for us here. Here's why you don't have better shoes. When I moved in with my drug dealer, I thought my life was going to be like Elvira from Scarface. Mm-hmm. It is not glamorous if your drug dealing boyfriend is also deeply addicted to drugs. Right. You guys are both getting high on your own supply. So, yeah. So you're not going to have nice shoes. Right. At that point, yeah, it's an insane thing to say. It's funny. Yeah, it is funny. So at this point, we know that it wasn't murder or there wasn't a rape involved or anything like that. But rumors, this story really started taking off, though. Rumors of partying and drug use uh, started taking over the New York tabloids at this point. Um, And on October 20th, the medical examiner released his reports And they said that while foul play was initially what they thought the cause was, tests showed that uh, Kirsten died from acute cocaine and alcohol intoxication, and her death was ruled accidental. So this kind of set everyone off because it's like party mom, like, right? Like, I mean, everyone loves a good party mom story. Right. Luckily, this time kids, I guess they were involved because she has kids, but it wasn't like a Casey Anthony party mom. Right. David Simon at this point, the co-creator of The Deuce with uh, Mark, He issued a statement uh, that said, foremost, this is a grievous tragedy for a young woman and her family as evidence has yet to be presented and the case yet to be adjudicated. It would be irresponsible to say more than that at this point. So in May 24th of 2016, which is uh, Holder and Johnston Johnson were arrested finally so that's almost half a year they're arrested even though they agreed it was accidental i feel like this is a classic case of like we can't charge them in it with anything necessarily about her death but we want to get them they're responsible they feel they're responsible for the death do you know what i mean like i don't know i feel like there are good samaritan laws in some states but i don't but he did call the cops right They're basically arrested on drug charges for distribution of cocaine. They're taken into custody for this charge, a federal, it's like a federal charge. I don't know, like drug, drug stuff. Like, I guess federal seems worse to me. And Johnson was also arrested for being an accessory after the fact, like helping this drug dealer try to clear up a crime. I I think what maybe they initially thought was, is this crime, did they sell the drugs that killed this woman? Right? Right. And is he, and did he aid and abet this drug dealer? You know what I mean? Like, why didn't, why didn't they call the police? Why didn't they call the 911 right away rather than dragging her down the stairs? So I feel like they couldn't, they couldn't find a charge exactly that fit what they did. So they have these sort of other charges, right? According to William Bratton, who was the commissioner at the time, as alleged, the defendant's apparent disregard for a victim of this poison is unimaginable. As alleged, when the defendants realized someone was unresponsive after an apparent overdose, they dragged her body down to a building lobby in Manhattan's uh, Chelsea neighborhood. Additionally, at the time of the arrest, authorities noted that Johnson was a longtime customer of Holder's from 2003 to 2015, and they 
they had all the records too of his text talking about going to Pepsi's house for drugs that night. Uh, that night, I think it ultimately was Johnson's removal of her body from the dealer's apartment and the minutes-long delay before calling nine one one were what led to the federal charges. His career was almost basically ruined instantly from this. PBS canceled a contract they had with him to produce another documentary, and HBO kept him off the set of The Deuce uh, going forward. So, as I said before, people really latched on to Kirsten's double life aspect uh, of the story. That was sort of the thing that they, they really wanted to talk about. It was, you know, she's like this perfect wife, a doctor by day, and then at, at night she's going to seedy bars and doing cocaine with strange men and, like, partying in New York City. A friend of hers, who I saw cited several times in different articles, so I feel like she's not really a great friend probably, but she gave a lot of information. Her name is Karen Bernstein, and she's a model, and that is in ironic uh, quotation marks, because <laughs> I seriously doubt it. She described Kirsten as not being a drug addict and blamed her death on a horrifying mistake. She said that she was a bit of a happy drunk and every blue moon she would go out and tie one on, but she was a good girl. Once she had the second drink, though, she didn't make the best choices and it would be up to us to make sure she got home safe. Now, there were also rumors that her family had been plagued by a lot of stories of her alleged infidelities, um, even though there are no there's no evidence that that was ever the case. And according to uh, Karen, there was no extramarital thing. Uh, Kirsten was a good person with a big heart who considered her children and Andrew everything to her. Um, her career wasn't even as important as her family. She didn't make a lot of money with her career because in a typical day, she would see 35 patients, most of them children in this crappy Brooklyn hospital. Her joy was to help and to heal. Now, the other interesting thing in this one article I saw was that Karen talks about a woman that Kirsten referred to as Miss X and that this was her sort of bad influence, this Miss X. And she's actually referred to in five different uh, statements that her friends gave to. Clearly, she said it to more than one of her friends. According to Karen, on the night of her death, uh, Kirsten did at some point meet up with this Miss X or was getting text messages from her. Eventually, they go to a bar that night called the KGB Bar on the Lower East Side, and that's actually where Kirsten hooked up with Mark. Like that's where that's they, where they met. they met. Now, the interesting thing to me is it seemed like in one of these stories that they were saying that Miss X was the one that Mark was texting when he was saying, "I'm going to go to Pepsi's and get a pick me up." Right. That she was. So maybe she's. Like, I couldn't find more information. I only saw this in one story, so maybe it's just completely bullshit. But I thought it was interesting. Like, maybe that was their connection or how they met through right. this woman who was never revealed, like, in any of the articles that I saw. That's, she has that story, and whatever happened, that was the bar they left from when they went to Pepsi's apartment. According to Karen, like, Kirsten was, in the worst case, naive about things. Like, I don't think she really knew enough about drugs to know she was getting over intoxicated. Like, I don't know that you can know it, yeah. but I think she wasn't a hardcore drug user. Like she just, she just went a little too night. far that night. Right. Now Johnson also had rumors starting to come out about him. Apparently he was having marital problems. He was married to a lawyer named Marlisa Vinciguera. And according to uh, the, these rumors, she accused him of kicking her inside their apartment 
And the NYPD actually did have an official domestic incident report filed against him, but he was never charged. Friends also kind of came out saying that he did travel in a serious circle of drug users, and he had been spotted at coke-fueled showbiz parties. Uh, He was at these parties with people like singer Randy Jones, the original cowboy in The Village People. Which is amazing. That's so hot. I want to go to parties with The Village People, especially the leather guy. Is he your favorite of The Village People? The leather guy? Yeah. Of course. I When I was a kid, I thought that was Freddie Mercur- Mercury. I was like, <laughs> oh, he's in another band. <laughs> <laughs> what? Can I ask you what your favorite Village People song is? Um, I don't know. I don't think I've ever thought of that. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? I really like Macho Man. I feel like Macho Man might be my favorite. You know what happened when you said that to me? I sung them in my head. I was like, those songs all sound basically the they do. same. They do. I love that movie, Can't Stop the Music. I haven't Did seen it. Did you see it? You no. have to see that movie. It's really bad. I really like Macho Man, but I also like In the Navy because it has that clapping. Yeah. It has the clapping in they it. They all sound really similar, though, because totally. I was like singing and then I was like, Macho. <laughs> I think Macho Man just because I love the term Macho Man. I do, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would go with Macho Man. I think. Yeah, that's my favorite. I don't think I'm going to pick YMCA. No. And the not. Navy, I like because I do love that kind of gay culture around like Tom of Finland in the Navy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that like fetish. Right. Like that sort of uh, gay man fetish, the Navy guys. Right. Those like tight. Yo, I just picture like Tom of Finland drawings where like they have these bubble butts and tight sailor pants. It's hot. <laughs> yeah. I love it's sailor like, pants. I mean, sailor outfits are hot. Okay? They are. Definitely. Um, and the other interesting celebrity that he hung out with was millionaire matchmaker star Stacy Kessler. Wow. Uh, a rep at some point when that came out, uh, a rep for Kessler, um, I think she was photographed with Johnson at some party that she threw. And and the rep said, she's not in a position to comment on this at that moment. She's such a, I don't like her. Do you like her? I think that show's so fucking stupid. I hate it. I really fucking hate it. Another story that was going around was that Johnson used his dealer's apartment as a sex den. I love like terms like that. They're so overwrought. Like sex. Who has a sex den? Basically, it's a fuck pad, right? But sex den sounds more. Sex den must have been invented by the New York Post. Right. That just seems like a term. They said that the uh, Johnson would use his dealer's apartment uh, for his own personal sex den and he would regularly bring women to the apartment for hours of socializing, drug use, and sex. Because you can't have a sex den without sex and fucking. <laughs> that was also kind of used by the prosecutors to show that he had this history of having these drug-fueled kind of like parties well, or whatever you want to call it at these apartments. And that he had a vested interest in protecting his drug dealer's stash house and his sex den. Like, that's why he agreed to help him move the body out. And okay, they, also, they also want to kind of smear his character, too, Oh, probably. totally. Right. Definitely. According to the prosecutors, over a period of years, Johnson cultivated his relationship with Holder and promoted illegal conduct in Holder's home to feed his own appetite for drugs and sex. On multiple <laughs> occasions, I feel like I'm saying sex like I've never gotten laid. That's how I'm saying it. But I love to talk about sex. <laughs> On multiple occasions over the years, Johnson brought women to Holder's apartment in Chelsea and stayed there for hours of socializing, drug use, and sex. What is the socializing they keep saying? Yeah, what do you, that's just hanging out between the s- drugs and sex, I guess. That's just hanging out. Yeah. We're socializing, yeah, technically. Of course. Well, we're working, but we're socializing. Of course. We're 
always socializing and having sex. I'm doing drugs with Rachel, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so on June 30th, uh, 2016, news broke that a plea deal was in the work uh, works. That took like a long time to go through. And it wasn't until the next year that um, March of 2017 that the acting United States attorney for the Southern, Southern District of New York announced that Mark Henry Johnson was pleading guilty to being an accessory after the fact, saying that he helped move Kirsten's body out of the apartment after she had OD'd on cocaine. Johnson's immediate response to seeing a dying overdose victim should have been to summon help, according to the press release. Instead, Johnson helped his cocaine dealer cover up the drug crime by moving the victim's body. He faced up to 10 years in prison uh, by pleading guilty to this, by the way. So they have a uh, sentencing, and... I guess when you plea, you get a you get a hearing to see what your sentence will be, yeah. and you can kind of present your side of stories or other evidence that will go into how much time you get. So there's these hearings, and we learn a lot more information during this period. Uh, one sticking point for Johnson is actually what you were kind of what we were kind of talking about a little bit before. He was really being portrayed as this person who just didn't give a fuck about this person's life and was only concerned for himself and his drug dealers, his, his fuck dens, <laughs> keeping his fuck den. Um, lawyers for Johnson filed a letter saying that he had cradled her head as she lay dying in the doorway and tried to help her after Holder threw them out. They really started piling on the drug dealer at this that point. That he was responsible. Saying that he was kind of the one being threatening and like, get the fuck out of my apartment, uh, et cetera. The letter added that Johnson was consumed by guilt because of what he had done, that he couldn't save her, and that he had been vilified for not caring when that couldn't be further from the truth. He reiterated again that he performed C CPR on her. He called 911 as well, um, and he didn't provide his name or details in the call because he was fucking scared. Right? Well, it does seem like he did everything right. right. I mean, he couldn't help that this guy was like, get the fuck out of my house. Right. And I'm sure it's a panicked situation. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. So Wire creator David Simon, the guy from The Deuce also, he actually sent a letter in Mark's defense. Uh, he urged leniency. And David Simon, before he was a reporter and a TV guy, he was like a reporter working like the homicide beat. So I feel like he really knows this subject matter and he's dealt with people with drug addiction and all right. of this kind of stuff in Baltimore. He urged leniency for Johnson um, in his letter of support. He took issue with a lot of these reports that Johnson had abandoned Cervani, uh, I mean Kirsten. Uh, and he argued that Johnson was a better man than depicted because because of what we just said. Like he did call 911 and all of this stuff. Had he not called for help and had he not remained with the victim, I could now I could not write this letter to remain or remain professionally associated with him. So he was saying, like, look, like, he didn't do it perfectly, but he was not, like, a cold, callous fucking monster who just let this woman die. He didn't just dump her behind an alley. Right. So uh, the judge in this case is a man named Jesse Furman. He sentenced Johnson to 366 days in prison. During the sentencing, Johnson was slumped in his chair and was, like, very upset. He couldn't collect himself, in fact. Witnesses say that he looked really shell-shocked and completely devastated by everything that was happening in general. Like, not just a sentence, just overall, like, yeah. it was a depressing thing. But, like, like I said before, the people in charge, the prosecutors and the police, 
department. They they really were they really considered it a true disregard for her life at that point, and um, they believed his conduct may have resulted in her death. Like if right. he had called right away, uh, things could have been differently. But like you said, you can never prove that. Prosecutors did kind of give him a little bit of thing, like oh, you did wait. <laughs> wait for the ambulance to arrive before you left. So he did get some kind of like credit from the prosecute prosecution. Um prosecution. I'm back to <laughs> what was that? Sean Connery. Stompernato. Stompernato. <laughs> um and James Pepsi Holder was also sentenced to five years in prison from charges related to her death. And he could have gotten much more because obviously he had right. much more serious charges against him and he had a, a huge criminal record. So we also learned a little bit more about exactly what happened that night from Johnson during this hearing. Uh, According to him, he had been celebrating that weekend. He just wrapped up some interviews for a documentary he was making about Sammy Davis Jr. for PBS American Masters. Three days later, he was about to begin working on the production of The Deuce. I think up until that point, they were in pre-production. He actually was like a major player in this, by the way. He brought the idea to David Simon like seven years before that. Like he had the whole concept and idea. So he wasn't just like some random line producer on the show. He said that he was so excited that he couldn't sleep. And that's why he ended up going out because he got a text at some point to go meet his friends. And he said that he normally wouldn't go out during a work period to party like that. But because he had... um, just kind of been so amped up with excitement and everything. So he kind of wanted to go out and unwind. He had had an occasional cocaine habit, he said, that began in 1991, but he didn't have a problem, according to him. And so he went out for kind of like a last call. Like, yeah. that was his deal. He said that he got into the cab initially by himself, and that was when Kirsten slid in to the car with him, asking what direction he was going. She asked him if they could share the cab and take her to Penn Station where her train to, uh, her train she was getting a train back to Long Island according to him I thought she had a hotel that's what I was thinking but this is like I don't I don't know exactly maybe she just didn't want to go back to the hotel with her friends I'm not quite sure but this is his version of what happened okay on the way to Penn Station she said that she had some time actually before her train left and did I want to hang out more so that's when they both according to him, jointly decided to go to Pepsi's. According to him, at the end of this story, he said, I had a split-second decision, a split-second lapse of judgment. Does that nullify everything I've done? People make mistakes. I'm human. In court, in this hearing, they also showed all of that surveillance video, which up until that point, I don't think had been shown or released in any way. So a little bit about what that video showed, and it's kind of sad, it actually shows her arriving. So at yeah. 4.25 a.m., they arrive at the apartment. She's wearing kitten ears on her head and is in clearly in like a party mood. Right. She's sort of bouncing about, pumping her fist in the air as they head to the apartment. That was the last time she was seen alive. The next time we pick up this video, we see them, and this is about, I think, three hours later, um, we see them dragging her kind of hoisting her legs like a wheelbarrow right and just dragging her like her back is on the ground down the hallway and out of the camera's view so you actually see her being dragged out of this apartment and then we also have video where we see him on calling 911 and waiting for the um, paramedics to show up 
he's just kind of pacing and skulking and like whatever. The judge in the case released the videos after he was sentenced. And he said that he showed them in court basically because he wanted Johnson to see what he had done. Like, here's you going like, you know what I mean? I think like seeing the image of him kind of not really doing all he, he, I guess he wanted to be like, see what you did. You could <laughs> have know. done more. You could have done what more. What could he have done more? Or just like, look what you, like, here's your thought. Like, here's you making all these bad decisions. I don't know what, I mean, I imagine seeing it is pretty. That's traumatizing. It's probably traumatizing. Yeah. Her family, by the way, was not in court for any of this stuff. Yeah. So I said before, their sentences, and he might be out right now because it's about a year, I think. He probably it, got it, less yeah. than a year. He, yeah, that's what they were saying. There was something where it could have been as, le- as little as 10 months. And that is the end of that. I think initially um, this story was suggested to me, and I was interested in doing it, but I was worried that it wasn't enough. So I was like not sure about it. And then Friday, uh, a story broke that I felt could be added because it was also sort of a shorter story and it had like a really similar kind of vibe to it in yeah. a way. Um, I mentioned this to Rachel before, like as I was writing it earlier today, I was like, oh, these are both about people with double lives right. or like a secret side to what they were presenting in their professional or personal life. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals, and during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th, Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. 
All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And this is a story that broke on Friday It's actually written by a friend of mine named Seth Abramovich. He writes for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, So it just kind of worked out perfectly well. I'm basically using his story as my source, but if you want to read the whole thing, it's called Death in a Hollywood Sex Dungeon, How a Top Agency Executive's Mummification Ritual Ended in Tragedy. I saw a few people quote tweet this headline and say this headline's wild. It's a pretty wild headline. It is. Because you don't really see mummification ritual. (laughs) And like, first of all, a lot of people sent me this story. Yeah, me too. Privately. And I was just like, my brand is so strong. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't talk to Seth about it, but we should have him on sometime because he probably has a lot of good Hollywood stories. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's just seemed like the perfect partner to that first story to me. So even though the story just broke Friday, pretty much what happened actually happened in November of 2017. So on November 20th of 2017, a man named Skip Chasey, who was a VP at William Morris Endeavor Agency, which is like, you know, where agents are. It's a big, big time agency. He posted a message on Facebook. The message said, I've just experienced a traumatic loss that necessitates my having to withdraw from the matting crowd and grieve for a while. I'll be back, I promise you, but for now I must tend to myself and a few others as well. Well, that's awfully cryptic. Uh, Yeah. This post, I mean, we've all been on Facebook, received tons of support messages of support and condolences and no one really asked what had happened uh you know what I mean people don't do that they're just like Uh, I'm thinking of you or whatever right my thoughts and prayers but what had happened was actually worth asking about in my opinion because it's not your typical my cat died uh what had happened was a sex ritual had gone wrong Chasey is actually like he had overseen what is called a mummification of a sexual partner where you basically wrap them in plastic wrap, kind of what we saw in Versace with with uh, Andrew Cunanan. Except consensual. It's consensual, right, right. Well, right. I think that there, the, the duct tape one, I don't know that it wasn't consensual until it went into, I don't think they had the safe word set up. Was the duct tape one? I don't think anything he did was consensual. Right, but he did have the plastic wrap, I think, with um, the guy... In Miami? No, the one in Chicago. Didn't they have something of that going? Anyways, I know that Andrew was in the BDSM community, and I do think he had a bad reputation. Because he probably wasn't fully consensual. Anyways, this was consensual, but it did remind me of that. Right. That that's basically what he was doing it's when you in conf- a bad way. You wrap someone up like a mummy, and they're confined. They can breathe still, like right. their air holes are open or whatever except when it's Andrew Kanan doing it his partner was in the process of having that done to him and then so it was two men it was two men and then he died basically while he was in that state so as I said this is another double life like story 
even though he wasn't really secret about it, he kind of kept the two things uh, separately. He had worked for William Morris for years, uh, but he also had this life as a master in the LA uh, BDSM community. He was known as um, Master Skip. And so, I mean, he was not just someone who was, you know, dabbling in this. He I'm had sorry. a long time. I can't take anyone seriously named Master Skip. <laughs> I know. It's not a good combination. Skip is, not, Skip is not the most daddy name. It's like me. a very 50s kind of paper boy. shoes, paper boy. <laughs> Look, you must have to be a good master <laughs> to get away with being named Skip. That's my guess. Like, right? And why is he using his real name? I don't know. I don't know. He... I don't know, because you'd think you'd want to change it if it's your name is Skip. That's what I'm saying. I mean, hey, Skip, is that even a real name? Like, do people name their kids Skip? Not or is that since a nickname? the 50s, I feel like. I mean, he's an older guy. He's like in his 60s. But, but I just yeah. feel like that has to be short for something. I just wanted to point out that this was not some... He wasn't like an amateur who fucked up because he didn't know what he was doing. He was in he the community. He more than knew what he was doing. And he, in fact, he was like an educator in the area. Like, right. he would host seminars and, you know, educational whatever meetings and ha- and go to all of these things like he was well known in the community as being like an expert on this process and he was also very successful in his business life he was doing deals for people like Aaron Sorkin like so this wasn't just some he was like a successful uh VP before that he actually worked for many years for Imagine Television which is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company so he was very successful as I said before, in his personal time, he was known as Master Skip. You can actually go on leatherpedia.com, which is a BDSM. Going Wikipedia. there right now. Well, I have it open, Rachel. Okay, so, good. <laughs> some of the interesting things, I think, from his... By the way, none of this is on his Leatherpedia yet. I don't know if they update this very frequently. But it does talk about some of his accomplishments within the community. Can I read the, what Leatherpedia is? Sure. So for people who don't know. Leatherpedia, a free online encyclopedia for the global leather community created and edited by volunteers around the world. So is it, so it's like Wikipedia Wikipedia. for BDSM. Right. Okay. One of his um, big achievements was that he competed with his pup, Tim, at the 2002 International Puppy Contest in Houston, and he won that. He was presented with the award for best trainer, which I'm just like, how are we not doing a best in show? show version like how is there not like something done because this sounds fucking fascinating oh i love it love to see puppy play puppy play yeah that was like his expertise like one of his expertises was puppy play right check out his leatherpedia page uh if you want to know more about that i found it interesting i mean he had been in this for a very long time initially he had lived in san francisco and he was involved in it there. And, and he moved from the Midwest to San Francisco in 1978. Then he was in New York for a bit in the, in the 80s. And then finally in 1992, he moved to L.A. And all of this time, he was a big, big name on the gay bondage scene. He kind of fancied himself a sadomasochistic spiritualist and a community leader. <laughs> I don't even know. I love that term. That's a good one, Seth. I'm giving Seth credit for that because I did not write it. Oh, wait. I forgot about this. There actually is a documentary called Pup. That's about the pup play scene. We have really? to watch this. Yeah, I have to watch it. Um, he's also was a certified grief counselor, so he did have this spiritual element that he was bringing right. into BDSM uh, too. He also, I think he 
No, he wasn't in a relationship at this time. He had a partner that died in the 90s at some point. Right. But there was no uh, evidence of foul play. <laughs> but he, I think he was single at this time. But the person he did the ritual with, his name is Doran George. And he actually was in a relationship that was like an open relationship. Yeah. His partner wasn't into BDSM. So he kind of let him go off and do this. George at the time of his death was 47. And he first met uh, Chasey in 20, April of 2017, and they met online, according to Barry Shills, who is George's boyfriend, or was George's boyfriend, and they were together for 16 years. They had a relationship for about seven months at this point, before this time in November. And he said that he kind of would joke with George Doran about this. Oh, you're going to see Master Skip. Is he going to spank you tonight? This is a quote from the boyfriend, by the way. I'm not mocking him. Uh, I was terribly naive about it. In my mind, it was like Fifty Shades of Grey crap. So I don't think he really knew. I think that's true for BDSM. A lot of people don't really know they don't what know. really happened. They don't know. Or they a have lot a lot of it. misconceptions about it. George was initially originally from England. He was a dancer and performance artist who moved to LA 15 years ago. He earned a PhD in performance studies at UCLA, and then he ended up teaching there. He was uh, very popular on campus and just considered to be like a vital, vibrant type, fun person. It was through some of his performance art that he actually started liking being uh, enclosed in small spaces. Because he did kind of avant-garde stuff, and there was one thing where he was in a freshly masoned brick tomb. Oh, like, wow. So he did kind of have a thing a long time sort of thing for this. He also was suspended in an art gallery one time in a duct tape cocoon, like a chrysalis from right. the ceiling. So, I mean, he had experience with this as well. In, in Master Skip, uh, Doran kind of thought he had found his perfect match. Like he had this expert in something that is incredibly dangerous to do, right? Like right. that's like one of the more, I would say, extreme like where your life is a little bit in danger, like that's part of the thrill probably. Right. So you want someone who knows what the fuck they're doing. All of the, all of the encounters they would have occurred at Skip's home. He lived in Los Feliz somewhere, kind of right off of Hillhurst Avenue. So like, that's a really great uh, little neighborhood. It is. <laughs> I will think. Like you have to have money to live there pretty yeah. much. Um, and I'm sure he did. So, I mean, you know, people are like, from the outside, the home <laughs> looked unremarkable. But on the inside, the basement was a complete, BDSM style dungeon. Well, what are they going to paint the outside black? Right. With come in here for <laughs> with like yeah. a sign. Yeah, it says come in the yeah, dungeon. Yeah, there's a ball gag, a big ball gag in the garden. Like, come on, their mailbox yeah. is like like a bust of like a guy in a hood. Right. There's statues of David everywhere. <laughs> that house in uh, Hollywood. I love that house. Um. So the room was equipped with padded floor tiles, a St. Andrew's cross. We went to a party with a St. Andrew's cross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A ladder back chair, a padded examination table, and a metal cage. Racks were on the wall containing numerous floggers, pottles, crops, canes, leather masks, hoods, ropes, um, everything you can imagine. It was like a sex shop, but like, I mean, he had it. It was dressed to the nines, whatever. I mean, look, if he had everything. If you have money and you're in that community, why wouldn't you build right. a room and for that? And he was teaching people too, so he probably tried everything. Yeah. Uh, he also had a cabinet of fetish accessories um, and numerous eye hooks were on the ceiling and ceiling beams for suspension right. and that kind of stuff. According to the LA coroner's narrative, uh, George arrived at Skip's residence around 2.30 p.m. that day. And about 4 p.m., the two went down to the dungeon and embarked on an elaborate bondage ritual. 
That involved Skip outfitting George in a locked metal chain around his neck and a penile chastity gauge. I'm going to tell you what that is in a bit. Uh, then Chasey, I mean Skip, Skip Chasey, proceeded to mummify George from head to toe with plastic wrap and gaffer's tape with small breathing holes at the mouth and nose. Around 6.20, Chasey noticed that George was not reacting properly. Upon closer inspection, he realized that George was not breathing at all. He called 911 immediately, and according to coroner's report, he began cutting all of the plastic and tape off of George's body so that when paramedics were were arrived they found george lying face up on the ground he was naked except for the chain and padlock around his neck and the chastity cage on his penis okay so i'm gonna tell you what a chastity cage is because i did not know what a chastity cage was do you guys know i know okay did i tell you no (laughs) okay Uh, a chastity cage is a device which locks around your flaccid penis and prevents an erection only the master holds the key to unlock it. So that's sort of a control thing where he, he'll tell you when you can get hard. Right. I, I mean, I feel like that sounds really painful to me to keep yourself not like to not make yourself hard when you want to, when your dick wants to be hard. That sounds like it hurts, right? I'm sure it's not comfortable. At the same time, I did think that that was kind of hot. <laughs> yeah. Like keeping someone from getting hard. There was also a trash can where all, all the plastic wrap and tape that he was yeah. in was kind of in this trash can. Right. But he didn't try to cover anything up. Like he literally was like, let me get him out of this fucking compression, yeah. right? They tried to resuscitate him there and it was unsuccessful. He was pronounced dead at 635. Um, and police immediately were on the scene interviewing Skip, who was completely cooperative the whole time. On November 22nd, an autopsy report was filed, so that's two days later. It concluded that the immediate cause of death was sudden death during recreational mummification bondage, which is probably not a cause of death many people have, I'm guessing. That's unbelievable. That was like the official... That's the official word on it. It wasn't like suffocation or whatever. The mode listed was undetermined. The possible... There was a possible contributing factor, uh, gamma hydroxyput acid, otherwise known as a recreational drug, and a nervous system depressant, GHB. Do you know this drug? Of course. Okay, I don't. <laughs> Jesus, Rachel. <laughs> Rachel's like, of course, I know every fucking drug. <laughs> a sample. What is that? It's like date rape. Is that like a roofie type thing? Yeah. Okay. Is and that, it's like is defi- GHB the official name of roofies? No. Okay. It's like roofa lava. Roof, yeah. I, I thought it might Shama be. Lama, I thought ding-dong. it might be roofie. Or something similar, but it's I wasn't like, sure. I mean, I it makes you fucked look. up like that. Like a similar thing. I've never done GHB willingly that I know of. Right. Uh, but I know that it's popular in, like, the gay party scene. Right. I have lots of friends who have done it. Okay. So he had a really small amount in his system at the time of the autopsy, but apparently that drug has a really short life, and it can leave your bloodstream or whatever really quickly. So it doesn't really necessarily mean he didn't have a higher dose at some point in his system. I mean, it's a party drug. Right. But there were no other drugs present in the the dungeon that evening. But that was a shock to um, Doran's boyfriend. That he was on G? That he was on G. Now I'm like all talking slang as if I fucking know. (laughs) Um, He didn't even smoke pot, according to his boyfriend. He wouldn't take an aspirin for a headache, only homeopathic remedies. Well... You know, things happen. <laughs> I mean, there is just this thing I think you don't tell it. He, obviously, he knew nothing about this BDSM lifestyle. Uh, and I can see why you don't talk about it. Like, he kind of made fun of it. Like, oh, is this a Fifty Shades of Grey? Da, 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 right. right. 
William Morris also released a statement at some point saying that they were unaware of the circumstances surrounding uh, this death because they didn't know. No one knew about it when it initially happened. Um, but the police file was closed and no charges were brought. So it's not like, what are you going to do? Put this guy in jail for no reason or, or fire him? Like, you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, he didn't do anything wrong. A veteran homicide detective was on this case and she agreed there was no credible criminal component to this death. Um, so the case was closed. The cause of death is still listed as undetermined. No one really knows if it was the drugs that sort of took it over, the restricted breathing. He also had some kind of bad cold or flu at the time, so there could have been fluid in his lungs. But there was no real determining factor of what – it could have been everything. Like, there was nothing that they could pinpoint as the actual cause of death. This story is so tragic. I know. It's really sad. There was some abrasions on his penis where the chastity device was – secured but there were no other cuts or bruises or signs of a struggle beyond um three broken ribs which was probably caused by the cpr right skip's not speaking anymore because there still is a statute of limitation as far as that case goes like you can always i guess charge someone with murder right right and the boyfriend said that he has thought of filing a civil suit against skip but that he just it's kind of not worth the fees that it would take to kind of get a lawyer and all of that and I mean, come on. Skip's lawyer said it's just a tragedy. There's nothing. It's not a result of anything Skip did. It's just a terrible tragedy. Yeah. He didn't try to run or hide or engage in any conduct that would evidence feelings of guilt. Like he cooperated completely and he's, you know, devastated by what it's happened. It's awful. I mean, I'm sure it's like in that scene, that must be like everyone's fear that something like this could happen. Even if you're I completely safe, like you can be as safe as possible and know what you're doing and you just don't know a human's body might be <laughs> in like a weird right. state. Like you just don't know. There's always going to be some element you can't control, right? Like Right. And I think with any risky activity and not obviously I have, I think the BDSM community in terms of like the way they practice Oh God, they're stuff so is, safe. They're so safe. But you just can't account for everything. Right. I mean, it's that's so, just the reality. It's and just, life, I mean, in any yeah, situation. Yeah, I mean, it's just so tragic. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know if you know this from the story, but I wonder how he's doing today in terms of his practice. Does he still do it? Well, is the he, story literally just broke two days ago. Right. So there really is no follow-up yet, but we will, I'll, keep my eye on it and maybe I'll talk to Seth about it and see like, like I wonder does doing. he take a break from that scene or does he right because he's traumatized by it right or, or or possibly did he learn anything from it like do you know what I mean like hey here's like <laughs> what I would do differently now or here, maybe there's like a new safety thing he can come up with I, I don't know like I, ultimately I don't know that there was anything so that could sad. have been done um I mean obviously I have a lot of sympathy for the boyfriend because it's like he, he just sent his guy has, off. He has guilt too that he didn't say anything. And it was like, he he's quoted as saying, I'm hitting myself. Like I, it was like watching my lover shoot heroin and not saying anything. Like, did I not do enough to stop him from, I mean, obviously I, the answer to that is no, there's nothing he could have done. That's basically all we know at this point, but it is like a crazy story and it is sad. It's so sad. Yeah. I, I mean, both of us know people in that, Right, right. We have close friends that are in that community. So it is sort of scary and sad, but they are really safe. Yeah. Usually that that kind of stuff I think happens when people don't know what they're doing. Right. So it's scary. It's it's just scary that it's like a perfect... It seems like a perfect storm of bad things 
Right. It just came together through no fault of anyone involved. Yeah. It's just a tragedy. Yeah. It's like very tragic. So that's the double life episode. I like it. Yeah. This was very interesting. There was two. It was funny when I came up with the double life. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I literally I was like, how did I not see that instantly? Because I'm a dipshit. I told you. Well, uh, they always do those episodes on SVU. And I love those ones where like the husband has some crazy double life. These both seem like they could be SVU episodes. They really do. Because you don't know like who it. did it. And like, were they complicit? Was it like intentional? Yeah. Right? Well, like, they would obviously. This, this second one, especially, like they would completely fuck it up though and make it more like did he didn't he kind of right. thing they would add some element where maybe the boyfriend <laughs> got jealous and did something like, right i mean i could picture the svu episode totally of the second story so dick right? wolf if you'd like to hire us yeah hire we're us available to write, to write this episode we have ideas we bitch. have lots of ideas <laughs> so that's that follow us on social media we've already talked tons about our facebook group we also have instagram and twitter everything's hollywood crime scene right uh, I think that's it. Yeah, Bye. that's it. Bye. Thank you.